0: I want to pick up where we left off last time as we're moving towards a close of Revelation. Um, we've got a few more lessons, I think, before we'll be done. I, I, my plan is, if everything works out right, to be finished with this by the end of December, uh, which I think is doable. And then for the new year, I want to start uh, more of a kind of a practical study, uh, maybe looking at other faiths so-called faiths, are other beliefs, um, and how to uh, look at them through the Scripture and maybe witness to those kind of people uh, through Scriptural means. Uh, so we'll see if the Lord continues to lead me that way. But for now, we've got probably one of the brightest parts of the Bible, the most hope-filled parts of the Bible, and that's the end of the book of Revelation where it talks about the return of Christ and Heaven And what the eternal age is going to be like and what's going to happen after that. We've been through a lot. We've been through a lot of judgment. I mean, Revelation starts off and it's a series of judgments that God is allowing to happen. Judging sin, judging man on this earth, um, breaking down man's defenses. I mean, you see the destruction of man's religion. You see the destruction of man's system, especially by the time we get to chapter 18 the earth is in tatters, everything uh, has been put down by God, and all along the way there is there is the promise of Christ coming. I said, I said before, I think what we're starting to look at is some of the most majestic, most glorious portions of Scripture, uh, be, simply because of what it deals with. It deals with Christ coming back. I mean, this is the hope of all the ages. This is what people for 2000 years have looked forward to Christ returning when is he coming back so that's what we're looking at revelation chapter 19 as you read through revelation you're going to see there's there's periods of praise in heaven there's there's chapters along the way that just record praise going on in heaven and there is worship by uh, the heavenly creatures to the to to God on the throne and and declarations of His glory and all of that. But when you get to chapter 19, which is another vision of it, something changes. It's as if it steps up to the next level, and there is just fervent praise going on. So let's read the first couple verses and just pick up from there. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1 says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. For He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, "Hallelujah!" for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You see how it kind of steps up? Man, it's just line after line after line. There is praise going on, and specifically one word, "Hallelujah." Over and over and over again. John sees this scene. He hears this, this mass of voices just praising the Lord. And I can only imagine how deafening that might be. And he hears over and over again, Hallelujah. You know how many times that is in the uh, New Testament? Only a couple times. It's in the Bible many times, actually about 30 times or so, and over and over again it's in the Psalms. Uh, the English translation uh, puts it in the phrase, praise the Lord, which is that, that's what it means. Hallelujah means praise God, praise ye the Lord. So it translates it there, and many Psalms begin and end with that phrase, uh, especially in some of the, uh, the latter part of the Psalms. It's not found anywhere in the New Testament, except for right here. It's reserved for a very special place, for a very special time. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, because of something very, very special that's happening. Notice what they say. Salvation is yours. Verse 1, glory is yours. Honor and power is yours. Hallelujah, praise Him. All of these things are yours and yours alone. We know salvation comes from nobody else, and God has all the power and all the glory and all the honor. They keep praising Him by saying different things. True and righteous are His judgments. Your judgments are true and right. Why? Because they have corrupted the earth. He has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. So when God steps in and judges... The people in heaven are saying, Right on. It's about time, is, is a sense that you could put it. And I don't know about you, that sometimes is where my heart is at. Lord, it's time for your judgment, and your judgment is going to be right because not only have they corrupted your earth and your creation with sin, but they've shed the blood of your servants. Right? That's in verse 2 He hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. That phrase kind of rings bittersweet in our ears because we know it's right, and sometimes we even look for it. We're longing for the judgment of God. God, take care of the problem. End this. I'm tired of all the blasphemy. I'm tired of all the people that hate your word and that hate you and go against it and that are ruining everything. Do you feel like that sometimes? Yeah, we do. So it kind of rings sweet in our ears, like, yeah, right on. There's coming a day when God's going to put it all down. There are some knees I want to see bow. To to Jesus. But it's also a little bitter. Why? Because we know what this means. And there's some people we love that reject God, right? And that are opposed against Him and that will face His judgment. Which, by the way, is why we never stop witnessing because we know passages like this Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and people need to know that, and they need to be prepared for that. So when the judgment of God does come down, they don't stand in judgment, they stand delivered from it. So the praise of heaven is rolling out, and it just continues. Look in verse 4. 24 elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped, saying, Amen, hallelujah. You know what Amen means? So be it, right? So be it. Praise the Lord. Let it be done, Lord. Let it be done. The world is shattered. Its religion, its systems are shattered. We see man has gathered at the end of chapter 16. Man has gathered to make a last stand and to make war with God. And heaven is praising. Heaven isn't worried. The people of heaven are praising. Look at verse 6. See, verses like this is where I kind of step back and I think. John sees this. He writes it down. John sees this. He hears it. And I wonder at the time that this actually takes place, what's going to happen? Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and the voice of mighty thunderings. (laughs) You get the point? This is loud, massive sound that's coming out. And what are they saying? Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You know the Hallelujah Chorus, right? I'm not going to sing it. It's written from the verse we just read. In fact, it quotes it. It sings that verbatim, along with a couple other verses in Revelation. And I just wonder, and I don't know if this is my selfish Western perspective, living in the time that I do, I wonder if it's going to be that song. Can you imagine... Millions and millions of voices saying that. Like a mighty thunder, like a mighty wand, uh mighty waters and this great multitude singing that. Oh, man, that'd be awesome. And will we sing along? As best we can, because we know we know what's, we know what's coming. Will the earth hear? I don't know. But I know heaven is praising. They will be praising. And why? For one very special reason. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice. Literally, let us be happy and jump for joy. That's what that word rejoice means. Let's be happy. Let's jump for joy. Why? And give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. The marriage is come notice it didn't say has come is come there's a difference if it has come it would already take place but it is come it means it happens here does it many translations do and i prefer of course you know i prefer the authorized version the marriage of the lamb is come this is the point and time where it takes place Because some will look at that and say, well, yeah, it had come. That's why they've been rejoicing, because it happened in chapter 4. No, chapter 19, boom, this is it. The the marriage is come. It is here, like right here at this point. And it is here because He is here and all of heaven is rejoicing. With this verse, in verse 7, we begin to look at the return of Jesus. Again, the, the hope, that's the blessed hope that we're looking for, right? When Jesus returns, we want to see Him. We want to be with Him. That's what faith is all about. I'm waiting to see Jesus, to be with Him. I believe in Him. I, I, I go to be with Him when I pass from this life, and I'm waiting to see Him, hopefully with these eyes, if these events take place in my lifetime. So you can imagine what kind of hope this should bring, and I love how God relates it. Because every one of you just read that and something clicked in your mind. The marriage of the lamb has come. I love how God does that. He could have used a lot of different words, right? He could have used a lot of different things to describe it. But he uses this example so we instantly can both understand what he's talking about and we can feel it. Those of us who are married know what it feels like to be married, right? Now we've got an emotional connection to this event, because I understand. I oh I get it. It's a marriage. It's the coming together of the two, but I also know um, the love, the companionship, the togetherness of marriage, and so I can take those feelings and now attach it to the return of Christ. So it's not it's not some uh, emotionless fact. I read on a page, no. God uses that kind of language now to connect my heart and and my brain together. You see? And by the way, if you want to go deeper, God made marriage to illustrate the greater good, actually. Marriage illustrates the higher relationship, but he uses that term so we can we can understand. So again, that's this is kind of where I sit back and think. Do you remember do you remember the anticipation before you were married? The waiting. How many engage, How many of you were engaged less than a year? How many? Enga- how, okay, so we had a few. How many were engaged more than a year? How many more than a couple years? I think I was right around two or three years. I don't remember. I dated my wife for five years and then we got married. So, you got engagement periods that range all along, right? A couple months, six months, year, year and a half, two years. You got you got all along the uh, the board, and seems to be the longer the engagement, the more the anticipation. <laughs> Some people could not be engaged very long; they got to get married right now, quite frankly, because there's an anticipation. I remember that waiting to be married, waiting to be free from the restrictions, at least if you did it biblically, right, which is kind of getting rare and few and far and in between. But there were some things that were reserved for marriage, and I wanted those. I wanted the restrictions gone, and I wanted the freedom when I could finally spend the rest of my life with my spouse. There was that, like, I can't wait. Is it going to be so good? Counting the days as they, they pass by. You remember that? Hopefully you remember that, right? And then that day came, and then we're free. We start our life together, and that's probably one of my favorite parts of marriage is just being around my wife being able to to go to bed together or to sit at the table together, the companionship that we have, the connectedness. That's one of the sweetest parts of marriage, one of the deepest parts of marriage. And I, I, I remember when I was finally free to do that. It's going to be the same way with Christ. Do you understand? We should be anticipating that day when we see Him, and there's going to be a day finally when we are Free to be with Him. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever taken time to ponder that? What it's going to be like to be in the presence of Jesus forever. The one who died for you. The one who has given all the good in your life, has guided you through so many of your own screw-ups and of hard times in life to finally be with Him free from restrictions. Here's why I say that. Our experience with Jesus at best, our experience, our human experience with Jesus at best is through the filter of a sin nature. Everybody understand? Our our best experience with Jesus is through the filter of a sin nature. We felt pretty close to Him at times, right? Like the time we were saved? Man, that's a good feeling, isn't it? peace and joy and love. Oh, man, my sins are gone. What happens the next day? You mess up, don't you? Maybe even the same day. Probably thought something you shouldn't have thought, should have thought, said something you shouldn't have said. We've felt full of the Spirit sitting in a church and maybe one of those church meetings where everybody's singing loud and, man, you can just feel it and everybody's just full of the spirit and and, and you feel that fullness of relationship. And someone tells a dirty joke after. Or there's gossip or something, right? Something messes it up. We've known the heights of joy and the depths of peace, and we know exactly how that can get all derailed the very next day. We live in and with a sin nature and Our experience with Jesus is filtered through that. It's it's hampered by it. You know the thoughts that get in your head. Unless I'm alone. You know the thoughts that get in your head. And there's a battle sometimes, right? Like, my brain is going this way. And I know it's bad. It's wrong. There's the spirit side of me saying, Stop, stop, stop. And here's me like a dog pulling on a leash. It won't stop going the other way. I hate when my dog does that. You're just walking along and poof, you know, there's something to smell over there, or something to smell over here. That's the sin nature. We're going along with God just fine, and here's the sin nature, our own mind, our own heart, our own sinful flesh pulling us over here, pulling us over there. That's what we deal with. It's a daily battle. My thoughts or the intents of my heart, the emotions even, that can plague us sometimes. Sometimes I wish I could just shut that stuff off. Just stop. Why, why do I get, why do I get to go there when I know I shouldn't? Why do I get to say this thing when I know I shouldn't? Right? We all know the battle. It's a battle. We battle our own failings. We battle our own, our own sin. And that is a battle against the desire to live holy. And those efforts that we do, then we got the sin nature. We want to be close to Jesus, and at times we are, but there's that sin nature to draw us away. We live Romans seven. Remember that passage? Paul is saying, There's things I want to do, I don't do them. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing those. He says there's, there's a desire that spiritual man in me wants to do right, but there's that indwelling sin nature that does wrong. What does he say? What does he end chapter 7 by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this? You ever feel like that? I do. You see, our experience at best, and it's a wonderful experience, don't, don't get me wrong, but our experience at best here in this flesh is filtered by a sin nature. One day that will be gone. I don't even think we can comprehend it. That's going to be gone. There's not going to be any sin in me anymore. God has delivered me from the penalty of sin. You've probably heard this before. The penalty of sin by His blood on the cross. He's delivering me from the power of sin by His Holy Spirit working in us as His people. And someday we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. There's not going to be a sinful thought. There's not going to be an evil desire of my heart. No more failing. No more temptation. No more battle. No more fallen, finite mind that I have to deal with. There's not going to be anything between me and my Savior. Just communion. There'll be full freedom. No more restrictions. No more rules. There will be full freedom to enjoy the relationship with Him forever and ever and ever throughout eternity. That's going to be amazing. Why wouldn't we want to look forward to that day? Let me just say this. Remember, remember eternity is timeless. It's just that state of being. So, The closest thing we can relate it to is being in that moment, singing that song in church when time didn't seem to matter. Or being in that moment around the church people of fellowship and it didn't care what time it was and we could have spent 10 minutes or 10 hours together and it just seemed to time to fade away. There's a taste of eternity. The state of being just with Him in that moment forever and ever. Oh man, (laughs) if that doesn't sound appealing to you, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. How could we not look forward to that? When all this world has to give us is failures and anger and bitterness and hurt, there's coming a day when that is gone and we will be with Him forever. The marriage of the Lamb is come. Like I said last week, 2,000 years of faithful Christians have looked forward to this, read these verses, and hoped it would be in their lifetime. We very well may be the generation that gets to see that happen. Oh, what a blessed hope it is. To see this happen with these eyes and with this flesh, to see Him come and then in the next moment to experience a glorified body. What an amazing experience it will be. No wonder heaven's going crazy with praise. They're so excited. It's here. It's here. So let's look just a little bit about that. I don't know. We'll see what, what we can cover in the time that we got left. So, what is this marriage of the Lamb? Evidently, it's a joining, evidently, it's a marriage of some kind. But who's he getting married to? Who does it say? The marriage of the Lamb is come and the world hath made herself ready. No, it didn't say that, does it? The nations have made herself ready. No, there's many people that believe that God's going to save everybody. It's called universalism. I don't know if you've heard that before. You've probably heard that term. Uh, Technically, universalism is the idea that in the end, everybody goes to heaven. All road leads to the same God, I think. Oprah said that, and some other people too. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what way. You can be a Buddhist. You're just going to get saved in the end. You can be an atheist in the end. You're going to get saved because God's just going to save everybody. Well, I, first of all, Scripture does not bear that out, and this is one of the points. It doesn't come back for the world, does He? In fact, there's people getting judged by Him. There's people making war with Him. If Jesus was going to save everybody, don't you think the war would not take place? No. The world is not who Christ has come for. The nations, it doesn't even say his family has made itself ready. What does it say? Listen, words are important in the Bible, okay? Words are important. Every word, I believe every word of Scripture is God-breathed. There are no fillers in here. Every word. We believe in something called infallibility. I believe this book as a whole is perfect. But I also believe the Bible is inerrant. Those are two different things. Some people believe in the infallibility of Scripture, but they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Somebody says they don't believe in it, you turn the other way and walk away. I believe the Scripture is inerrant. Every word is inspired by God. Every single word. So when the Bible uses a word, it's very important. There's a reason it doesn't say world or nations or family. It says wife. Wife for a reason. The distinction is made. It's a wedding pictured here, not an adoption. See that? It's a wedding. The lamb is getting married, getting joined, reunited to his bride or his wife. So then there's a question we have to answer, right? All of heaven is rejoicing. This day has come. The marriage has come and his wife has made herself ready. Well, who's her wife? Because I kind of like to be part of that group of people, wouldn't you? If they're going to get joined together with Christ and be with him and enjoy some of the things that we're going to read about, Who is that? Does Scripture say that? Or does John just being really poetic here and just pulling a term out of thin air and and saying stuff? (laughs) Writers in the Bible don't say stuff. They write things for a reason. There's a reason John uses this phrase. So who is this bride? Does the Bible tell us? Well, let's see. So let's turn to a couple Scriptures. First of all, there's no doubt Christ is the Lamb. I hope that's clear. Just to make it clear, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 29. You probably have this memorized. should have it underlined, highlighted, whatever you want to do. Burned into your brain. Every time you read about a lamb in Scripture, this should ring in your ears. John 1, 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming to him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Over and over, Scripture talks about Him that way. The book of Revelation describes Him as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the Lamb. There's no doubt about that. And He is the Bridegroom. So let's work back towards the left in your Bible. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, just to show again, this is not an unfamiliar passage. Jesus is a groom. Well, yeah, sure, He's the Lamb, but it says He's like a groom. Where did John get this? John got it from Jesus. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 5, and let's pick it up in verse 34. Jesus is being questioned. The disciples of John the Baptist fast. You don't fast. What's going on? Here's what Jesus' response is. Verse 34, He said unto them, Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. He's speaking about Himself. How are they going to fast when I'm here with them? And He calls Himself the bridegroom. This is not something that's totally new to scripture. Jesus describes himself in this way. Okay. So he is the bridegroom, he is the lamb. Who is the ones who are these people, his wife who he is going to join himself to? Isaiah chapter 54. Go there first. And then we'll work our way back into the New Testament, lay down some principles. I could just tell you. You probably already know. I want to show you. Don't take my word for it ever. What does the Bible say? Does it square with Scripture? Does it square with Scripture? Isaiah 54. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Isaiah 54 and 5 says this. Isaiah is prophesying to Israel. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather thee. Many other places in Scripture. This is just one of them. Many places in Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in other places as well. Israel is described this way. God is thy husband. He has called thee as thy wife. Even those places He says, you've you've been an unfaithful spouse to me and you've wandered away from me. Israel is described as His bride. And so is somebody else. His church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So we have Israel in the Old Testament uses language that describes her as the wife of God, if you will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 2, Paul says something here as he writes to the church at Corinth. He says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And there is a picture of engagement with a faithful fiancé waiting to be united with her husband. You see all these pictures that are given, the the symbolism there that is used in the book of Revelation. It's described of Israel and it's described of the church. Now let me just hold on there a minute and make a, a, a point. God does not have two brides. People do that. It's called dispensationalism. God does not have two brides. And if you question that, go back and listen to the messages I've preached on Romans 9, 10, and 11. Israel rejected. God's people rejected Christ. And so they were cut off. Who was grafted in? The Gentiles, the church. That's Romans 11. Israel rejected. They're cut off. And the Gentiles through the church was grafted into that same heritage. If I could describe it this way, the bride is God's people. God's people. Israel in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament and today. If you don't believe me, I'll let Scripture explain for me. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see this. I want to just walk through this quickly. Like I said, I don't like making statements. Just blah, there it is. Accept it. I'm going to go on and teach. Keep teaching. No, I want you to see it. I don't. I. I, I want you to see for yourself. You study the verses we're reading. You. You come to your own conclusions. But this is what I believe the Bible says. Israel, God's people in the Old Testament described as His bride. The church, Paul just said, I've espoused you to Him. You're engaged to Him, to to be married and united with Him. And we see in Revelation chapter 19, the marriage is here. It's here. And His wife has made herself ready. Well, there's a purpose there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Pause there. We didn't have the heritage of Israel. I don't have the physical heritage of Israel. I'm from a Gentile family, right? I didn't have this heritage. I was without it. Verse 12, then at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ has done something for me. It has purchased my redemption and it has brought me close now and into the family of God. For He is our peace who hath made both one. What's both? Jew, Gentile. Israel, the church. He has made both one. Hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. It's God's people it flows together seamlessly in Christ Israel to the church there's no there's not two different ways of doing it it's always been one way and it's by faith following him and in the church it is all broken down all brought together verse 15 having abolished in the flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances that's what some people need to understand these people that hold to the law it's done It's done, it's been put down by the blood of Christ. He fulfilled it. Come not to think that I am think not that I am come to abolish the law, but I'm come to fulfill them. For to make verse fifteen, for to make in himself of twain one. Let's 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 un-King James that. (laughs) He makes the two one in himself. Israel, the church, blended together now in him. Jew, Gentile, one in him, in the church. For to make in himself of twain one new man. What is that new man? That is his body, the body of Christ, the church. So making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that which were which were nigh for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the father therefore now you are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of god and are built upon the foundation of the apostles the prophets jesus christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the build, building fitly framed together groweth to a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Oh, there's so much we could say, but you see it all comes together in Christ. There's not two groups of people, it's one group of people brought together in the Christ, in, Christ, in His body, and in chapter 3, Paul goes on to say, hey, let me explain the mystery of the church. Verse 10 of chapter 3, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's through the church. It culminates in the church, ultimately culminating in a marriage, in a joining. Who is that bride? God's people. God's people of the Old Testament, God's people of the New Testament. Today, that is the church. The church has not died. The church has not gone out of relevance. The church is not an old school thing. The church is essential. The church is essential till Christ comes back to take us to himself. A lot of people miss out on that today, man. A lot of people say, no, I'll serve God anywhere I want, where I want. I don't got to go to a church. I don't got to be part of anybody. I'll do my own thing. That's not what the Bible bears out, is it? No, he's drawing all things together through him in his body, making it known by the church. There seems to be some confusion as to what that is. Is that made up of everybody everywhere? Or... Is it made up of all those who say they love God? Or who is, what is a church? Let me just take a couple minutes to define that. The word means a called out assembly, right? You've heard that before. Ekklesia, it's a Greek word. Ekklesia means a called out assembly. And I think it's a pretty important word because Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it pretty important to jesus if he's building it well who is it is it everybody everywhere or does those who say they love god no it's a called out assembly a local body of baptized believers i say that phrase because that's what the scripture bears out you can see it when jesus starts the church He calls out the 12 hey follow me right i'm calling you out follow me you see it repeated over and over in acts they hear the gospel, they believe, what do they do? They're baptized and added. They were baptized and added unto them. That phrase occurs so many times in the books the book of Acts. It's really a, uh, a sad thing that today you have to go back and dig it out to show people. It's the New Testament assumption. It's the assumption of the Great Commission. You saved, you get baptized, you join the church. Go make disciples baptize them, and teach them all things, right? That's the New Testament assumption. That's the pattern. You don't do it any other way. If you're going to do it another way, you're making your own pattern. I don't want to be on the end of that. I'm going to follow what God said. That's why, that's why we're so, yeah, I'll say dogmatic. I don't, I don't care about being dogmatic, about preaching the Scripture and teaching the Scripture. It doesn't matter what I say. What does it say here? It doesn't matter what I think. What does it say here? This is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. This is the end, the beginning and the end of the law that we have. What does the Bible say? That's why I'm a proud Baptist indistinctive. That's why I take on the name. There's a lot of people dropping the name church. They're dropping the name of of any kind of denomination. They want to be communities and fellowships and gatherings. No, no, I'm a Baptist. I'll stand in that name proudly there are some landmarks which i hold to in scripture salvation by grace through faith we're not moving on that right in christ alone you come to me saying well i got saved cuz I, I i i believed in buddha you're not saved jesus says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me period that's a landmark I can walk up just as the pillars that are around here. See this? This is what I believe. This is in Scripture. We're not moving on that. Baptism is a landmark of Scripture. The church is a landmark of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture is a landmark of Scripture. Communion, things like that that are really important. They mean something. Because God has told us how we ought to worship Him, how we ought to function That's what a church is to hold to. We don't move those for the times. We hold to them. There's people ordaining gay pastors. Gay women pastors. Because that's, it's offensive to say, first of all, that a woman shouldn't be a pastor. And it's offensive to say that a pastor must be the husband of one wife. Well, today, why can't they be a husband of one husband? Or a wife of one wife? To say, um, to say the opposite is bigoted, racist, and uh, all kinds of other words they want to throw in. We don't change for the times. You understand? And there is most of these modern-day churches giving in on those things. That's ah, okay. we gotta, we got to change with the times, including the Catholic Church, who for years stood against that. Now the Pope is coming out and saying some things. We're seeing churches change for the times. We don't change because God doesn't change. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when He speaks, it stands. I don't change salvation because I don't want to offend some people. Oh, sure, I don't care. As long as you say you love God, come on in. No, no, no. No, no. Have you you been born again? Have you received His forgiveness and His cleansing? Did you ask Him to save you? Do you believe in Jesus and Jesus alone? Yeah, I'm going to ask questions like that because that's what the Word says. And I'm going to say, hey, this this is the way we serve. This is what a church is because the Word says it. We hold to those things. A church is made of a... Local group of believers baptized by the authority of Jesus carried out by a church holding to New Testament faith and practice. And every word I said, I said very carefully right now. It is Christ's authority we carry out as we hold to the New Testament guide of faith and practice. What makes a church a church? As long as we hold to and believe what this Bible says, and we practice the very same things, we are called a Church. One that is local, not universal. That's why we have letters to Ephesus and to Corinth. And we have seven candlesticks and seven letters in the book of Revelation. That's who she is. The local New Testament church. God's people. I want to end with this. This There's a lot of information. Probably you already knew it. You're probably saying, duh. Well, there's some people who don't. There's some people who don't understand it. why, Why we're so dogmatic about it. And why when it comes to the end, he says, hey, His wife has made herself ready. Well, who's his wife? The whole world? No. Everybody who's saved? No. Because there's people who say, I will never join a church and I will never submit to scriptural baptism. I've had people say that to my face. But the Bible speaks very clearly about some things. Ephesians 5. You're already in Ephesians. Ephesians 5. Look at the symbolism here. It's not me who's saying these things. It's God. Revela- or, excuse me. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit to your... Excuse me. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as... Look at the picture that's being drawn now. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You see the correlations there? You see the same language being used? John didn't pull this out of anywhere. He knows what he's talking about. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, now we're flipping back to the the symbolism, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as, here we go, spiritual uh, uh, reality, even as... Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. (laughs) There's so much we could say in that last phrase. You understand God died for the sins of every human being ever? He is the propitiation for our sins, but not not only for ours, for those of the whole world, but Acts 20, Acts chapter 20 says it, says it here. He died for the church. What we do is blood bought. He purchased His bride with His blood. That He might sanctify and cleanse it, verse 26, with the washing of water by the Word. You see the special relationship that we enjoy? Sanctification. Those who have submitted themselves to, to Him and say, I'm going to follow you as Lord and Savior, going to be part of your body. He sanctifies them, washes them, verse 27, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We're going to come back to that when it says in the next verse in Revelation 19, the fine linen, uh, the, uh, the garments of the saints, is the, fine, the white linen that the bride wears is the righteous deeds of the saints, which have been given to us by our Spouse, Christ. He's going to present it to himself. Verse 29. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. does it say that about the world. It says that about his church, his local body of baptized believers. The world does not know Him in this way. Just the same way those who will not submit themselves to be part of His people do not know Him in this way. Just the same way my kids do not know me the same way my spouse does. It's the church who enjoys that special relationship with Him. Verse 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I have no uh, no hesitation calling the church the bride of Christ, cause Paul just did right there. I speak concerning Christ and the church. You want to know what the relationship's like? Look at a marriage. Look at a marriage. So who is his wife? Israel of the Old Testament, the church of the New Testament, and today. There's a special day coming for her when we will be united with Christ. The trump of God shall sound. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive shall be caught up in the air to be with Him to meet Him in the air and to be with Him forever. Oh man, that's what happens here when we are finally united with Him. So we'll talk a little bit about more about that next week. Probably finish up uh, some things it says about fine linen, about what it means to be righteous. Because there's a call to be righteous. There's a call to be faithful to Him, just like we're faithful in a marriage. There's a call to be faithful to Him. And then we'll move on to His actual return. What happens then? And then what happens thereafter? We'll spend some time with that. So I pray it's been helpful. I pray it's caused you to think about some things. And I pray it's a blessing.